0: You're listening to the Hub City Church podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. I'm Jesse, and I listened to what Gabe talked about uh, last week about how different churches in different regions start different, their mourning. And I'm going to make a confession. I kind of wish we were German. Um, I can write this whole thing and the thing that stresses me out the most is how to start it. Like, how do I be winsome and engaging and what kind of funny anecdote do I bring up? And, and I am like, let's get down to business. Let, we don't need any of that. But, so, henceforth, I will be German, but uh, I actually have an anecdote today. So, all that was for naught. So, yesterday was April Fools, but it was also April 1st. And I realized it's been a long time since we've talked at all about the history of Hub City and some of the things that we, as a church, uh, went through in our first year. And so I thought I would share a little bit of that with you because it's been nine years since our first Easter as a church. And whoo, there were times that we didn't know if we would make it through legitimately, and our first Easter was one of them. So we had been a church for a couple of months, less than six. We had spent months and months and months restoring an old uh, grocery store that had been empty for years. And about five months into that restoration project, it got rented out and we got kicked out two weeks before Easter. And so we had this moment of, okay, we're going to go to South Albany High School. Should we have our first Sunday be on Easter Sunday? Or should we give ourselves a week and then meet at South Albany High School? And we decided to give ourselves a week. And so we would have one Sunday and then Easter Sunday. And so we had our one Sunday. South Albany High School was so fantastic. They told us we could keep all of our stuff inside the building. We didn't have to keep it in a trailer like other mobile churches. We could store it all on site. And then one bright and early morning on April Fool's Day, I got a call from Nathan, one of the founding pastors, and said there was an arson who burned down South Albany, was it the cafeteria, and all of our stuff is lost. And it was not an April Fool's joke. So then our first Easter was us trying to figure out how to make a service happen when we had nothing. And that was such a good way to start a church, to figure out that it was not on our own volition that any of this stuff could happen, that we had to re- completely rely on Jesus and each other. And it, it was like the whole community came together and donated stuff, and we made that happen. And even more than that, I think that was our first a joy offering was that Easter. And we ended up, our tiny little church, after all that week that we had been through, we raised like $15,000 that we then gave to South Albany High School on that day. Yes. So that is a little bit of our history. And an anecdote that I can, that was winsome and engaging. So <laughs> you're welcome. We can be Americans this morning. Let's Start with prayer. Father God, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you can take all of our frail offerings over and over and over again and turn them into something beautiful, that you can pull your glory out of literal ashes. And nine years later, that we as Hub City are still serving this mission of Jesus, Restore Albany, and that we get to be a part of that. And I pray today, as we learn more about who you are and your kingliness and your kingdom, that we all leave this place changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who don't know, I am a homeschool mom of four. My oldest is a sophomore in high school, and my youngest is in Fourth grade, I believe, but homeschooling, you know. And every time my kids ask me how to solve a problem, whether it's a life problem or a math problem, I give them the same answer. What do you already know? That's just such a good place to start. And once you've decided what you already know, you can move on from there and ask yourself the questions, what do I need to know in order to solve this? And I have actually applied this to my Bible reading, and it has come out pretty well for me. So as we look at this passage, I was asking myself, what do I already know? That traditionally is a little bit different for us as we read through on a Sunday morning because we look at an entire book of the Bible. And through that process, we build our knowledge of context, of audience, and all of that. And this morning, we have finished Galatians, So we don't really have any of that this morning, so we get to do all of it. So I'm gonna just give you a little of background information. This passage is called the triumphal entry, and it's in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we'll spend a little bit of time comparing and contrasting what those four gospels say, because they actually say some different things and that's not to say they contradict each other but those four perspectives actually help to build a more um, complete picture because they each have different ways of looking at it and different perspectives. So Matthew is the source the primary source that I chose for this morning mostly because it comes first so there's really no other reason but Matthew structures his his whole book, primarily focusing on um, Jesus's ministry. And then his death is not as focused on, which puts this as 21. This chapter is 21 out of 28. And then John does kind of the opposite, which makes this passage found in book 12 of 21. So prior to this passage, Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been like fighting with the Pharisees and kind of generally revealing to his disciples who he is and why he came. So in Matthew and Mark, the passage that comes right before uh, the triumphal entry is Jesus healing some blind men. In Luke, it's the story about Zacchaeus, and then there's a conversation about money And then in John, it's this feast celebrating Lazarus and his resurrection. So even though they're slightly different things, all of them point to kind of an escalation in Jesus's ministry. He has this immense following of disciples and this contentious relationship with the religious leaders of the time. So what don't we know? I would love for you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 21 and just look and see what you notice. What are some words that stick out with you? What do you, what doesn't make sense to you? What questions come up? These are just really good questions to ask yourself any time you look um, at a passage of scripture. I'm going to start with a few things that struck me while reading this passage. First of all, if you'll notice at the beginning, there's just a ton of names. So what is significant about these places and why are they important to include? Another thing was the donkey. It's very specific about this donkey. Why? Why is there a donkey in here? And I immediately thought of Mary and how Jesus came riding into Bethany in his mother's stomach on a donkey. Is that part of it? Did Jesus send his disciples to steal this donkey? What about this quote here in the middle of the passage? Where is that from? What does it mean that not only does Jesus seem to have this like affinity for donkeys, but that it appears to be his destiny? And then Jesus goes into the city riding on the donkey, and there's people throwing their cloaks on the ground and cutting branches, which I thought they were palm branches, but Matthew doesn't say anything about palm branches. They're just like random branches from trees, and if they're not palm branches, then why do we call it Palm Sunday? And then there's all these people who are shouting Hosanna, and to the son of David. So one, what does Hosanna mean? Two, if these people know that he's the son of David, then, and they're crowning him king here and shouting these things, then, like, why are they going to turn around and kill him just a couple of days later? Because it seems like if they know he's God, they wouldn't want to do that. So, what's happening there? So, whew, just a couple questions and a slight glimpse into the inner workings of my brain. Also, because you know I can't read my Bible without Webster's input, what does the word triumphal actually mean? So there's a list of questions and observations that we can get answers to. So let's start with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives... When you compare the different accounts of the triumphal entry, John is the only one that does not specifically list this as where they're coming. So that gives us a clue that these locations are really important. Here's a map of the area and what I found out about this. So Jesus and his disciples had been in Jericho prior to this and were making their way toward Jerusalem for the Passover pilgrimage. They stayed in Bethany for a little while and visited the freshly risen Lazarus, performed a couple of miracles, and then made their way to Bethpage. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem was about 17 miles long and brought them to the Mount of Olives, where they had a beautiful view of the distant city of uh, Jerusalem and then descended into the Kindred Valley before entering the city gates. So while the map is up very close to the Kidron Valley where it's written on the words there is something called the Gihon Springs, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So a couple of reasons why this location is important. One, we know the time of year happening is Passover. This is a very, very important Jewish holiday. It's the day that God's people remember that he brought them out of slavery. And it's actually so important to God that his people remember this, that he gave instructions on how they were to remember and observe this holiday before he actually even saved them. Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish religion. It's where the temple is. And that means at this point in history that it's actually where Jesus, where God dwells, the spirit dwells in the Holy of Holies in this holy temple in Jerusalem. This building, this city is of massive importance to the Jewish people. Wars were fought over this city. Ezra and Nehemiah, the entire books are written about rebuilding this temple after they were in exile. So specifically during this time of Passover, there's a massive pilgrimage from of God's people into the city of Jerusalem so that they could spend this very important day in this very important city. And this was especially true for rabbis and religious leaders of the time. And if you know, if you've read any of the gospels, you know that there's a very contentious relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders. So this is really important context to have here. The city is being whipped into a religious Fervor right now. It's the most important city, it's filled with the most important religious people, and it's the most important religious holiday. The most devout and pious people who are willing and able to drop everything to come and take a break from their daily lives have come to spend this holiday in this city. So another thing, another reason this location is mentioned here is because contextually, this image of the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is actually not the first time this has happened. This is in reference to an earlier Bible story. A different son of David had actually made this almost exact same trek and entered into the city gates to be crowned king. In the beginning of 2 Kings, David is sick and on his deathbed, and one of his sons takes it upon himself to crown himself king. So he rallies a bunch of um, generals and religious leaders, and he brings them all to create this feast for him and crown himself king. And then David's trusted advisors come and say, hey, do you know this is happening? And you promised Solomon that he would be crowned king. So David brings in his one priest and his one general that are loyal to him. And they send Solomon to the Gihon Springs, which I pointed out earlier, which is right outside the Kidron Valley. And they put him on a donkey. And they sent him into the city. And they blow trumpets and yell, long live the king. So this is from 1st King, 2nd King 1, 34 through 35. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. This is a really important moment in Jewish history, and one that would have been told over and over. An imposter almost took the throne, but David, in his wisdom kingly and power, appointed his son put him on his own donkey, and set him on the throne. And here, in the triumphal entry passage, we see the new and better David, and the new and better Solomon, being crowned king in a similar attitude. The priests and religious leaders have once again misplaced their loyalty and are crowning a king of their own making, while the real king is walking in their midst. And here he is, riding on a donkey through the valley of Kidron to be crowned king. But more succinctly, the current, not dead king, sends his son through the valley of Kidron to succeed him while riding on a donkey with people around him yelling, hail, son of David. That's a pretty powerful image, isn't it? So the rest of a little bit more of 21, Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So donkey, what's with the donkey? John says a young donkey, but the rest of the gospels use the word colt. A colt, if you don't know, is a young, uncastrated male donkey that has not yet been broken. I personally don't know a lot about donkeys, but I have ridden horses, and I have, in fact, ridden unbroken horses. And that is not because I am a good horsewoman, I just got lucky. An unbroken horse is not for the faint of heart, even if they're really good horses. Jesus is put as on this unbroken colt, and it doesn't actually speak to his horsemanship. It speaks to his kingship. Even the animals obey him. Let's look at Mark's version of this story, because he gives us a little more information about how the disciples obtain this donkey. Mark 11, 1 through 6. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, "'Go into the village in front of you, "'and immediately as you enter it, "'you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. "'Untie it and bring it. "'If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? "'Say, the Lord has need of it, "'and will send it back here immediately.' And they went away and found a colt at a door standing in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing on tying the colt? And they told him what Jesus has said, and they let them go. The fact that this colt is unbroken is apparently important to Mark because he clarifies that it has never been written. So in these times, a king owned things and what what the king owned belonged to the king. It was sacred and it was important and it was actually a killing offense if anybody rode on the king's steed without his permission. It was a source of honor and prestige if you were allowed to. If you remember in the book of Esther, the king remembered that Mordecai saved his life and the honor that he gave Mordecai for doing that was to put him on his own horse, put his own cloak on him and parade him through the street. The king's steed should be unsullied by any other butts in order for it to be special. So Jesus, riding this unbroken, unridden donkey is in itself a pronouncement of his kingship. And Jesus is showing us how important of a king he is by being able to tell the future here. Did you catch that? Jesus knows exactly where the donkey will be and he knows the questions that people will ask and how to respond and that they will acquiesce. So back to whether or not Jesus stole this donkey, because I know you're worried about that. He didn't. You know why? Because it's already his. A king can't steal anything in his own land because all the land is his already kings had the power to take anything they wanted in their own kingdom. Period. Jesus didn't have to ask to borrow the donkey here because it was already his. So Jesus saying to his disciples here, "Tell them the Lord has need of it." It's a really profound moment. This is Jesus declaring his kingship, his authority over the land and the people. He's telling them, "I Am the king here and everything you see belongs to me to do with as I will. Close your eyes for a minute. Imagine a powerful king riding over the crest of a hill. He's probably wearing shiny, fancy armor. His long hair is no doubt magically blowing in the wind that doesn't exist. What's he riding? a fancy white steed, right? It's probably looks similar to Shadowfax, Gandalf's father of horses, with his white mane mane and fast ride. Now imagine Jesus. I can imagine that sound effect that I won't even attempt to recreate, but sounds a little like a disappointed deflation. You can open your eyes now. How incredibly underwhelming is a donkey? very. And that's the point. Jesus is declaring his kingship here with his words and his actions. The very act of him riding into Jerusalem instead of act walking is a pretty big deal. And he's doing all these things in the very way it was prophesied for a hundred year, hundreds of years before. Jesus is fulfilling the plan that was always meant to be. In Matthew and John, they quote this passage from Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God had a plan from the very beginning. He had been unfolding it for hundreds of years, leaving these little clues for people to follow. And here, here's one of those clues that Matthew and John are revealing to us. God's plan for a king was for a king to come riding in, not on a great big beautiful steed full of shiny shiny armor and with an entourage of powerful men, but humble and riding on a donkey to bring salvation and righteousness. The next verse in Zechariah says, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There's this lovely little aside following this prophecy in John, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him after all those years of getting a first-hand seat watching jesus perform miracles and raising people from the dead and saying these things that were so powerful and confusing and revolutionary and in the moment jesus's disciples didn't see it for what it was but they eventually did they did figure it out and you know what that tells me there's hope for me our relationship with jesus is a journey a process, in experience in growth and revelation and hindsight. We don't have to know everything now because it will be revealed to us in time. Jesus did all these things to declare his kingship, and the very ones participating in the declaration, literally the ones walking through this ad hoc coronation ceremony with him, didn't see it for what it was, and Jesus loved them anyway. He patiently participated. He humbly led them and accepted them, and then died for them, knowing that they didn't get it, but that they would. That is such good news for me to hear. Okay, you had no idea how much you would learn about donkeys in this passage, did you? There's a lot. So what about the people here? Let's look at the rest of this passage, starting at verse 8 in Matthew. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We see no palm branches in this passage, but if we read the beginning of chapter 12 in John, we see where the palm branches come from. John 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We see from both of these passages that there's already a crowd gathered waiting for Jesus to enter the gates. John shines more light on that crowd in verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign you hear that? The reason why the crowd went to meet him. This crowd had been following Jesus because of all the miracles he'd been doing. This is not the first time Jesus had a crowd of people following him for the wrong reasons. After he fed the 5,000 in John, he confronted these following, those disciples following him saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus saw that they were not interested in him because of what he was, but because of what he could do for them. And here they are again following him, not because of the humble life of righteousness and peace that he was offering him, but because they had heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead and healed the blind. And they are so impressed that w- with what he can do that they put all of their hopes in him, but in the completely wrong way. They have hope for their immediate situation. They are hoping that he'll heal their physical wounds and save them from the Roman ruling. And so they are crowning him king of the physical world and in this physical realm. They say, the words they say to him, Hosanna literally mean save now. And it was a quote from Psalm 118.6. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It initially was a prayer, but it eventually became a liturgical form of praise. Even more fascinating, Psalm 113 through 118 are considered halal psalms, which are psalms that they would recite specifically on special festivals that involved pilgrimages, and more specifically, Passover. So they put their cloaks and the palm branches on the ground because it was an act of coronation. It was like rolling out a red carpet for an important person. It's saying that they are so special and so holy that their feet shouldn't touch the dirt on the ground. So God's people are here praising him, crowning him, and identifying him as the son of David, which literally means of the line of kings. They're calling for him to be crowned king here. They're pulling up all of their knowledge of ancient messianic language. They're crying out for Jesus to save them now. And Jesus is here to do that very thing, but their idea of salvation is so much smaller than his. In fact, it's so small that they miss his plan completely i have been guilty of that myself the crowd that has been following jesus then converges with a crowd from G- jerusalem who see the commotion and come out to see what's happening in verse 10 and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying who is this and the crowd said this is the prophet jesus from nazareth of galilee From some of the other gospel accounts, it appears that once the people in Jerusalem find out who Jesus is, they join in on the praise. Mark says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Then Luke adds this detail into his account, saying, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on their way down of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So Jesus had been systematically intensifying his ministry up to this point. Can you think of all the miracles at the beginning of his ministry where he told them, you never, don't tell anybody what happened. (laughs) Like, it's not my time yet. Just go in peace. And here, Jesus is doing the opposite. In fact, that passage that I quoted earlier um, from John was about him telling his, it was after him telling his followers that he just like needed some space and he ran off into the woods and is avoiding them. So here you can see that in his miracles and in his talks with his disciples, Jesus is getting more blatant about his person, about his purpose and his identity. He's getting more inciting with his words with the religious leaders, and he's escalating the impressiveness of his miracles by raising Lazarus from the dead. And now he's entering the holy city filled with religious leaders and religious fervor and he's not shying away from anything he's walking right through the midst of this and allowing his name to be called and his praise to be sung and knowing exactly where it will lead a normal person would see the situation coming ahead the religious fervor and the volatile atmosphere and would run for the hills Jesus sees it and walks straight into the midst of it like a true king would, knowing where it would lead, knowing what would happen, how he would be betrayed, the pain and the suffering that he would have to endure. And do you know why? Because those are all temporal things, physical things, and he is the king of so much more than the now. They wanted him to crown him king of the moment, but Jesus says, through his very entry into this holy city of tension, that he knows the plan and it's bigger and it's better than they could ever imagine because he is the king of forever. Luke ends his account of the triumphal entry with this interaction. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is king, and he is worthy of praise. And even if, though, the world rejected him, he is still king. The city walls would worship him as their creator. Russ Ramsey, a pastor and author that I love, wrote a book called The Passion of the King of Glory, And he describes this moment of the triumphal entry this way. Jesus accepted the praise of the people because though they didn't really recognize the king he was meant to be, the rest of creation did. This was a coronation, and if the people wouldn't praise him on this journey to the capital of his kingdom, the stones within her walls and lining her streets would cry out, Rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He is coming to bring you the salvation your hearts have always desired. So here's the incredibly underwhelming coronation of the king of the entire universe. Brought in on a donkey, surrounded by people who want something from him and not him. Instead of a golden saddle, he's wearing his disciples' dirty cloaks. He's sitting on them. Instead of a carpet of velvet, He's walking on branches cut from the nearby trees as a spontaneous afterthought. And he's writing to his death. And this, this is his moment of triumph. Triumphal. Of pertaining to, celebrating, and commemorating a triumph or victory, exulting over victory, rejoicing over success, Splendid, magnificent. In this passage, Jesus is crowned king by the people of Jerusalem, the hub for importance for the Jewish people. This is the moment the whole Bible is pointing to, the culmination of prophecy and Jesus's own words. This moment, although it doesn't seem like it by our earthly standards, is a splendid, magnificent success. This is the moment that for thousands of years, creation has been groaning with longing for. This is the moment that God has been pointing to and slowly revealing since the moment Adam and Eve ate that fruit. This is Jesus walking towards the death of his earthly body as the ultimate Passover lamb. He allows himself to be ridiculed and humiliated and ultimately killed. And that's the kind of king he is, a humble one, one who brings peace and righteousness. And what does he do with his kingship? Almost immediately, he turns around and allows himself to be killed. And make no mistake, no one took Jesus's life from him. He laid it down, willingly. He rode through this crowd, knowing the weight he would suffer on their behalf a short time later. He listened to their cries of Hosanna, save us now, knowing they would be the same voices yelling, save yourself, days later. He accepted their palm branches spread under their feet and their shouts of joy and adoration, knowing that in the very near future, they would coronate him again with a crown of thorns, and those voices would be mocking and full of hatred. Today is Palm Sunday. It's a day that for hundreds of years in the church calendar, God's people of believers had gathered together and recognized him as king. They have given him their glory he deserves and recognized their own faces in the crowd of people who praised him one minute and crucified him the next. Tomorrow begins Holy Week. It's a week set aside in the traditional church calendar to remember what he has done for us and the type of king we worship. It's a time to spend some time preparing our hearts and posturing our bodies towards the coming resurrection. Do you have time set aside this week to look towards Easter? Do you have time any day of the year to look towards Easter? Do you prepare your hearts all year long for the good news Or are you like the people in this crowd, ready to crown Jesus king of the moment when it's convenient and easy? Do you believe that God is worthy of your time and your attention? How does that look in your life? Do you recognize Jesus as as the true king of your life, of your heart? And do you fully believe that Jesus is powerful enough to handle even the small things in your life because let me tell you he is Jesus is the king he's the king that is big enough powerful enough good enough the one who is prophesied about for all of eternity he's the king of creation so that donkeys calm themselves at his feet and the very rocks and stones worship him I invite you to join with us this week and with the global body of believers to remember what he has done with us, for us, to give an hour of your day together or separately, to worship, prayer, and scripture, and to doing these things alone or in community. We do these things not because they save us, but because the one who does save us is worthy of our time and our attention. So when you come to the tables this morning, do it with praise. We can sing Hosanna, save us now, as a praise because we know that he already did. We can sing Hosanna, save us now, as a prayer because we still have so much unbelief we need to surrender to him. We can sing Hosanna because we are still in the tension of the already and the not yet. So sing loud to the king who loves us with humility and so, so much patience. Take that bread and juice this morning in remembrance of the Passover lamb who was slain in Egypt as a symbol of God keeping his promises and the Passover lamb that it ultimately pointed to. Give this morning, give to the king who is worthy of our giving. Give to each other because we are members of this kingdom. Give your resources of time and money to serve those in need because that's what Jesus did. He gave his very life so that we could give in love as well. I'm going to close us out today with the rest of the chapter in Zechariah. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on this land for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty